morning. So uh, the title today of my message is War and Peace. Uh, not because I'm going to talk about the novel from Tolstoy, but because when Jason asked me to speak on this verse, he said something to the effect of, I think you could tell war stories from your life of leadership. Uh, and I want to tell you some war stories, but I really want to ground it all in the concept of peace. Uh, and by peace, I don't necessarily mean the lack of war, but more what the biblical concept is of peace. You know that the word peace is the English translation of roughly the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom means peace. And shalom is very, very big in God's plan of redemption for the world. One thing I know for sure is it was very important to Paul. In fact, I again this morning went through the beginning of every one of Paul's letters. And in the beginning, he offers and asks for grace and peace from the Father in every one of them. He's always greeting people with this idea of peace. In Isaiah 9.6, and I'm using my online Bible here, but in the book of Isaiah, in the ninth chapter, and in verse 6, the prophet, who many uh, believe this is a foretelling of the coming of Christ, says, for us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now in the book of Genesis, in the 14th chapter, Uh, beginning in verse 7. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 17. This is after Abram had taken some people and basically uh, rescued his nephew Lot from captivity. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, meaning Abram, at the valley of Shava. And Melchizedek, the king of Shalom, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
And Abraham's response to that blessing was to tithe a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. Now, uh, many would say that Melchizedek was an appearance of God, maybe even Christ, in the Old Testament. That's called a theophany or, or Christophany. The appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Where we get some support for that idea comes from Hebrews 7, where we're, we are told that the name Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. But the king of righteousness was also, in Hebrews 7, the king of peace. Because Shalom, or Salem, was another reference to what became known as Jerusalem, or the city of Shalom, the city of peace. Melchizedek was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, in the uh, 10th chapter, and in verses uh, 1 through 6, Jesus also brings up this concept of peace that is very much a part of God's plan for redemption. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into this harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. I became familiar with an application of this verse uh, through one of the missionaries from Grace, whose name, name is Andy Bell, Andy and his wife Tina, were the first couple that was sent out by grace to a full-term life of missionary work in Indonesia. A few years ago, in a conversation with Andy, who had become a, a man who really had been able to win favor crossing over in among the Muslim people and the leaders in, his, in and around his community, uh, I asked him what he thought was the key for the success that I noticed he had in being able to cross over uh, into 
a, a position of respect among the Indonesian people. And he pointed back to this verse, and he said, I've always sought to find a son of peace, a man of peace, to whom I could connect among a group of people. And that, he thought, was a key to how he was able to bridge the cultural gap. Now, this concept of peace uh, is not, as I said, simply the absence of war or the absence of some sort of battle. It really is greater than that. It's more about the harmony that we experience when we live with harmony inside of ourselves and with others and with God. I think this verse, of these verses that we have today, beginning in Romans uh, 16 and going from verse 17 to verse 20, is related to this concept of peace. So let me read it to you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I think in these final instructions of this great book that we've spent a number of years going through, I think Paul was talking here about the divisions that come about and clearly, I think, some of it is because of doctrinal differences. But I think the divisions that he's talking about are the divisions that come about just because in community we bring with us our sin nature and this desire that we have to satisfy ourselves breaks the peace, the harmony that God has designed our community to reflect. So what about some war stories? Um, and I'm being careful here not to mention a lot of names or anything, but early in my um, life of ministry, I remember that, and this was in uh, probably in the uh, mid to late 80s, there was a time where the Presbyterian Church and the various flavors of the Presbyterian Church were going through struggles and churches were splitting off and 
congregations were breaking away, and then there were fights over who really owned the, the, uh, the real estate and the church building, and lawsuits were filed over it. Um, th there was just a lot of that going on. And a lot of that was because of some doctrinal differences that were being uh, settled uh, within the Presbyterian Church. But in particular, there was a church that was near my house where I lived at the time called Timonium Presbyterian. And there was a split that happened there, and a group of people left that church and started another Presbyterian church. And within about a 12 to 18 month period, there was a split in that church, and a small group left to start another Presbyterian church. And within the first couple of years of that, there was another split that was caused. Now, interestingly, in further reflection after all of this happened, there was a Christian therapist who was very well known in that area of Baltimore who was a ringleader of every one of those splits. He was a common denominator for every one of them. And in none of him, none of them, was he ever the leader, the senior pastor. He was always in a leadership role that was in subordination. And I think we see a lot of that. People who are in a reporting position who really desire to be the leader, and I think in many ways, probably without realizing it themselves, they conduct themselves in a way that creates division because they're recruiting people to their side. And whether they're aware of it or not, they sort of pit themselves against the leader and anyone who follows him or her. Um, I saw this at Grace. Uh, Grace has, in, on more than one occasion over the years, had significant leadership fallout um, that has led to people um, leaving. In fact, um, there was a long-term, very key leader at Grace who was one of these people that, once again, on further reflection, was someone who wasn't the leader but really wanted to be the leader, and the way he conducted himself was in a way that he very subtly was able to position the senior pastor in a position that was in opposition, and then to subtly recruit people to his way and his line of thinking. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, a time at Grace after the found, one of the founding pastors of Grace, Jim Death, Deathmer, after he left, um, there really seemed to be 
people that were pulling in a couple of different directions. And, and this leader person called me, and we had a long telephone conversation. I mean, one of these 40 to 45 minute conversations talking about things. And all of a sudden, I felt his tone turn to where he was trying to get me to align with him in opposition to another staff member. Because see, there was this leadership vacuum that existed, and in a really subtle way, he was luring me, trying to lure me into a position of siding with him against somebody else. There's another example that I think of of a well-known international Christian organization where a very dear friend of mine had wound up being recruited to this organization and there was a new uh, president of this organization that recruited my friend. And when he got there, after a couple of months, he sensed that there was this real division within the leadership of this organization. There was a leader who was someone that had the critical technical expertise that gave this uh, organization its mission. But that person had been passed over for the position of president, and this other person had been brought in from the outside. And my friend was then brought in by him, and as a result, he clearly felt the opposition that existed for him with this other person. Now, over the period of a few more months after that, this person who had been passed over had been courting people on the board of directors of this organization and, in essence, staged a coup where the board made a decision to release the new president that they had brought in and promoted this person to be the interim CEO, interim president. And this happened at a board meeting that took place on a weekend. And they made the decision to do this early on a Sunday morning. This new interim CEO left the board meeting, went to the office, called my friend on a Sunday afternoon, and told him, I need you to come in here and meet with me. And when my friend showed up, he said to him, I want you to know, so-and-so has been dismissed by the board, and I'm now the interim CEO. And my first act as the interim CEO is to tell you that you are fired. And what I want you to do, and I'm here to help you, is we're going to pack up your office now, and I want you to leave and never come back. Christian organization, on a Sunday, 
on a Sunday. And by the way, that person is still, that person went from being the interim CEO to being the permanent CEO and is still the CEO. And every time I get emails from this organization, my skin crawls knowing what went on and how he got into that position. So, last war story I want to tell you has to do about my call to be a part of New Hope. The way I got to New Hope was my very dear friend, fellow elder, Russ Decker, who I had traveled over the world with, etc., who had been part of the group that initially started New Hope and was the uh, senior elder or chairman of the elders here, called me and said, um, I think we could use some help from you. There's disharmony among our leadership. And uh, I think the elders here could really benefit if you could come and do some mentoring for us. So originally, I started just attending the elder meetings and observing some things. I didn't come in to start teaching them or anything, but just trying to observe some things. And what kind of fascinated me after a while, and you guys may remember this time in the history of New Hope, the overriding issue of the day was what had Jason done to offend me? Do you remember that? Every week, the conversation seemed to be, was I offended by something that Jason did? It was really kind of odd. I mean, at the elder meetings, that was sort of the, you know, who was offended by what Jason did. And Jason would try to sort of give people heads up about what he might do to make sure he didn't get any signals that he offended people. It's kind of interesting that it doesn't seem to be that way anymore around here, does it? It's really interesting. Um, yeah, that could be. So along the way, before I really had a chance to share this observation and why it seems so odd to me, because I wasn't here on Sunday morning. So I don't know what else was going on, but I know the conversation was, what had Jason done to offend me this week? Um, in the midst of all of this, Russ felt led to leave. And he announced at an elders meeting, and he and I hadn't talked about it ahead of time or anything else, but I instantaneously sensed a call at that point to be more involved with Russ leaving. Um, now, I didn't just say, hey guys, I'm coming in, I'm here. I went back to the elders at Grace and said, I have a sense of this call, but I basically am leaving this with you. Let me know what you people think about that. And over a period of time, uh, there were various discussions on one side and the other of it. And 
ultimately they gave me the blessing to leave. Well, then I went to Ruth to tell Ruth, here's what I'm thinking of doing. And by the way, the way things worked out among the elders at Grace, the comfort level was for me to come over for a year. And that was seven, eight, nine years ago, I don't know. But, um, but I, I wanted to make sure Ruth sensed that it really was a genuine call for me. And then I went to Jason, and I said to Jason, I'm sensing a call. The elders at Grace are kind of okay with this. I've talked to Ruth. She's okay with this. Both of them are talking about a year. What do you think? And I left it with Jason, and then with Jason and the elders before I came. Now, I tell you that because there's a... Uh, a model of leadership and decision-making that was something I wanted to bring here uh, that was uh, a key to what I thought could help here. And one of the things that I was uh, sure of is among the elders at that time, there were some sons of peace. I mean, Rob is a guy that I sensed was a son of peace. And Kevin was a man that I sensed was a son of peace. So there certainly were some anchors thinking back to that lesson that I had learned from Andy Bell um, about one of the ways to bridge is to look for sons of peace. What had happened at Grace for years is there was a model of leadership that I think comes from the marketplace. And and that's what I would call a a wise, quote-unquote, model, where what you try to do is to form leadership teams comprised of bright, godly people who have differences and who get together and have a free exchange of their ideas and opinions, and then advocate for their position. So you get an idea, you think it through, you think it's a good idea, then you go in and try to convince everybody that your idea is a great idea. I don't think that's the biblical model of leadership. And my support for that would be to ask you to turn with me to uh, Matthew. Matthew 16. I'll get there in a second. And beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys for leadership, because here Jesus is granting leadership, I think, to all of the disciples, not just to Peter. And there are several possibilities for him referring to him in his Greek name, Peter, as opposed to his Hebrew name, Simon, because Peter sounds like Petra, which is the Hebrew word for rock. So when he said, and on this rock, did he mean Peter the person? Did he mean in the area of Caesarea Philippi, there was this huge rock formation which had been a center for centuries of pagan worship where different um, shrines had been built into the rock for different pagan gods. Did he mean that rock? Or did he mean the rock which was the truth that you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Or was it the rock that is flesh and blood did not tell you this, but my Father in heaven? And the leadership model and the way of leading and making major decisions that that supports is a leadership model where bright, godly people who have different ideas and opinions and see things dearly, who want to bring up those ideas, don't advocate for their ideas, but bring their ideas and set them into the midst of the team of leadership who, by the way, are operating under the principle that we pray every week in John Chrysostom's prayer, that when two or three are gathered together in my name, you, God the Father, will be in the midst of them. So the idea is to have a leadership circle where people are not advocating, trying to win their ideas, but depositing them and saying to everyone, is this of the Lord, or is this from my flesh and blood? I think the reason that we have so many war stories to tell about Christian organizations and leadership splits Obviously, some of them are doctrinal. But I think a lot of them are because of our sin nature and the fact that our default position is to be selfish, to want our ideas to win, to want things that are right for us. 
to bear. It's uh, what Paul warned against in Ephesians uh, 5, not warned against, but uh, what, uh, the opposite of what Paul advocated before when he said, when you come together, speak to each other in psalms and spiritual songs, uh, thanking God for everything and submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ, putting others before yourself. That's kind of the model of what the church is supposed to be about. And Paul also in Philippians 2 gave us Jesus, the model of selflessness, who didn't consider equality with God to be something that kept him from taking on human form and submitting himself to punishment. And by the way, I think that's a leadership decision-making model that works really well in marriages, and it works really well in families, too. So let me conclude with uh, actually something that Matthew referred to, not Matthew, I mean that Matthew, in his time of uh, leading us in worship today, without he and I discussing it, I wanted to conclude by reading from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we within ourselves, in our homes, in our workplace, in our marriages, in our families, may we live in your peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding. May we hear your voice, and may we do your will to your honor and glory. Amen.